When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, why don't tell me tell me that you're like three, two, one. We're actually doing the proper conversation, and I'll turn okay. into proper person. <laughs> oh wait, okay. I, well, I kind of okay. want the improper person, but um. Okay, you get me my you get my Milo person then definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, three, two, one. This is Rachel Fulton Brown from the University of Chicago. You're a medieval studies professor. Is that correct? Or... I'm in history. We don't actually have a medieval studies program, so I'm okay. in I'm in the history department. And you just published a book. I don't. I can't swipe my screen. I can't. I guess I can swipe my swipe my screen right now. But I have all these links because I was going down your rabbit hole. Mary in the Art <laughs> of Prayer, that yes. just came out. Um, yes. Within the last month or so. No, it came out in November this past year. Oh, okay, so it's about so a in year a, old. in academic terms, it's very new. I yeah, <laughs> right. You guys work on things for fifteen years so that they'll be read in fifty. Yes, basically. And how's how's that going? Is that what? How does that figure in into your overall academic project, Mary and the Art of Prayer? So it's my second major monograph, and I'd say you're right. It took 15 years. Um, my my first book was published in 2002, um, which is from Judgment to Passion, uh, devotion devotion to Christ and the Virgin Mary, 800 to 1200, and Mary in the Art of Prayer is, as it were, the sequel to that book. The first book is on hmm. prayer to the Virgin and Christ, particularly through um, the liturgy. Um, and through exegesis of the Song of Songs. Hmm. And the new book is on the Hours of the Virgin, the prayer to the Virgin Mary through um, the, the so-called Little Office of the Virgin. And this, hmm. this, book, this new book is much more focused on the Psalms and the exegesis of the Psalms. But the Psalms is like the, the larger frame for the Song of Songs exegesis. Mm-hmm. So they're, 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 they go together. They're very mm-hmm. and and they're both published by Columbia, so there's some consistency in the way they're presented. I I, I like Columbia as a press very much because mm-hmm. they make very beautiful books. <laughs> Same typeface and uh, indentation. Not exactly, but the, with the, with the second one, they they particularly asked me sort of what style I was looking for in, huh. in the in the book, and I said, well, a book of hours, of course. And the, the, their production team does a very nice job of sort of decorating, um, maybe a little bit more than you get in a usual academic book. Mm-hmm. Hours is a technical term that you're using. Could you explain that for the general readership? Sure. Um, that monks and nuns would say prayers every day, and um, according to the Psalms, they have a, a, a sort of structure. Um, one of the Psalms says, that, you know, I praised you at night, and so they do a night office, which they usually set around like two in the morning, as it were. Hmm. And then um, the same Psalm has a phrase that he says, seven times a day I have praised you. So they have a, a cycle of hours, which are seven during the day, and hours just means those those hours of prayer. So mm-hmm. they have one in the middle of the night and seven during the day. Mm-hmm. And a book of hours is a, uh, a companion piece to go along with those hours of prayer, and it's usually illustrated? Yes. Well, so the hours of the Virgin is a is a kind of subset of hmm. the full monastic practice that the full monastic practice we call the divine office and um mm-hmm. for the benedictine rule the divine office would work through all of the psalms once a week right so you have 150 psalms and they're divided up into a schedule so that the monks and nuns say them in full through the week um the marian office is um less complicated than that that you're saying a, a sort of subset of psalms that are chosen to be specifically about her mm. um there's 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 some variations from day to day so that monday and thursday tuesday and friday and then wednesday and saturday have the same texts but it's a, it's like a subset practice of the monastic practice and then um, and at- books books of hours contain the Marian hours. Um, they also contain other prayers. They might contain um, the mm. Office of the Dead, which is a is another prayer cycle built around the Psalms as well. And um, in the later Middle Ages, 
books of ours often had um, illustrations. So yes, you're, if you've seen a, if you've seen a medieval manuscript, you've probably seen a book of ours. Mm. Particularly if you've seen something like a Christmas card, um, because some of those <laughs> images are very beautiful and they're often used for illustrations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your academic, uh, your take on the uh, investigating the hours of the Virgin. Uh, is to what what are, what are you extracting? What kind of knowledge are you extracting from that, or, or what story are you telling, and then what theory are you building? So the book is is rather challenging as an academic book yeah. because, as I say in the the sort of pitch for it, I say, would you like to learn to pray like a medieval mm. Christian? Um, the idea is that the book. Um, as I've written it, leads you through saying the hours of the Virgin, not not so much by saying um, the 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 text exactly right. It's like I'm not just prancing you through it, but I'm I'm setting you up so that you understand the imagery behind the hours, mm. and um, the the major frame for saying the hours is the Ave Maria, which was the technically the um, introductory chant for the hours of the Virgin, but it becomes its sort of independent practice as. Catholics still know today. If you say the Ave Maria with a, or the Hail Mary with your Rosary, it's it's a sort of subset practice from the hours. Um, so the first thing to is to understand why you would say the Ave Maria, why you say this Hail to Mary, both why you say the salutation and what her name means, and that that um, opens up to the problem of well, what is it? What where does the imagery come from that medieval Christians used to talk about her? And my book, Mary in the Art of Prayer, is is meant to help you read through the psalms that are used in her office so as to understand the imagery that's associated with her. Mm-hmm. Do you construct a, a general um, idea of the feminine or the conception of the feminine uh, that is presented through the, this book and this these liturgies? Well, so no, because the way in which Mary was thought about in the Middle Ages is somewhat different from the way in which she's talked about now hmm. and one of the one of the great watersheds for Christianity and for devotional practices generally is the Enlightenment um, and with the Enlightenment particularly the 18th century most of the imagery that had been associated with Mary is basically laughed out of existence huh. um, <laughs> I mean quite literally um, in in the sense that one of the book I, I end the my marrying the art of prayer with an epilogue um, talking about a 17th century um, Spanish nun who wrote a four volume life of Mary based on this ancient tradition where she describes um, Mary coming to her and 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 uh, envision hmm. and helping her understand all the scriptures that had been read about the Virgin um, since antiquity, um, Casanova, the great lover, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, was given this book um, when he was imprisoned in Venice, and um, his his verdict on it was that uh, the the Inquisitor who had given it to him to read had intended to drive him mad. Um, mm. That that sense of this devotional structure is insane. Um, I think is 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 it embarrassed the Church sufficiently so mm. that by the 19th century. The whole sort of discussion of Mary shifts, um, and instead of talking about her, as I will explain, um, in the terms that she was talked about in the more ancient tradition, the focus comes to be more on what the 19th century cares about as the feminine, right? Oh, okay. And so, if you ask, if you ask me, is is it feminine? I will say no, um, but but that's because this sort of breakdown between the masculine and the feminine that most people are working with now is a modern category. Um, the way in which the Virgin is understood in in the ancient and medieval tradition is as much more as a place, um, and very specifically as the place where God becomes present. Mm-hmm. So, in 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 the, the the sort of most ancient term, she's the temple of the Lord, in which the Lord takes on human form. Now, the 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 sort of deep ancient tradition. And there's a lot of controversy around hmm. this. I use some fairly controversial work in some of my interpretation. Um, is that the the king when he's enthroned um, in the ancient temple rites was himself putting on the Lord, right, the the Yahweh hmm. character in in some way, and is anointed into that role. Um, Christ is the anointed one, and the the real challenge for Christianity is explaining why and in what terms. Um, hmm early Christians claim that Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus as Lord is Jesus as 
the one who is named in the Psalms as Adonai. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the ancient tradition, you do not say the, the holy name, you do not mm-hmm. say Yahweh, you say Adonai, which is translated into the Greek as Kyrios, which is translated into the Latin as Dominus, which gets into hmm. English as Lord. But in the Psalms, yeah. when you're saying Lord, and in the medieval tradition, they're always understanding that Lord as being Christ, right? So you're trying to understand how this Lord becomes present and in the mm. Psalms, he's constantly becoming present in his temple. He's becoming present on his holy mountain. He's becoming present in the cloud. Um, Mary is that place where he becomes present. And in the medieval iconography, the most famous um, description of her is as the throne of wisdom, the sede sapientiae. Mm. That's another of these place place characteristics, right? She's she's. So if you want to say she's the Ark of the Covenant, she's the throne of God, she's the temple, she's the holy mountain, she's the holy city she's creation um mm-hmm. and so in modern terms we tend to worry about whether or not she's female or feminine or, mm. or woman um in in the ancient medieval tradition what they worry about is she is the most perfect creature ever made because the creator made her to be his dwelling place um and um of mm. the, the of the texts that are used to describe her in her liturgy the most significant ones are saying um things like um from Ecclesiasticus, she is she is the place where um, the Lord took up His dwelling. Yeah, it's rather different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. I was just at a talk with Jonathan Peugeot, or that Jonathan Peugeot gave last week, actually, uh, just outside of uh, Olympia, Washington, and he talked about the divine feminine as. Um, as the place where Christ becomes manifest. Uh, it mm-hmm. was, and he went through... I think he may have been listening to me, but I, he, I've also been listening to him. And his sense of the home, the feminine hmm. is the home, I think fits this quite nicely. It's like there, the, you, and, and also the, the sense in which um, Mary makes God visible to the world hmm. it, as a place. And that, that's the, the, the sort of iconography that Jonathan works with, right? She shows the creator to the world. Yes. It's, it's, very, it's a very orthodox understanding. She presents as well as allows yes. uh, a place for the presence to become manifest. Exactly, exactly. Is there, is, is there um, at all, uh, is this a modern invention or, or something else that I'm putting on there that, that the female or Mary is entirely passive? And thinking about the woman building the body of Christ, there's, a, there's an activity of the feminine, but it, that's, that doesn't have any place here. It's just, a, uh, I guess there's the pun there, but Mary is just <laughs> the place. And, and the receptacle. She's very active. Okay. I mean, that that is what is so, this is why I say, I mean, what, my great goal in all of my scholarship is to show, I mean, Mary shows Christ to the world, the yes. Lord to the world. Mine is to show Mary to the world and to say most of the categories that we're struggling with in mm-hmm. the present that particularly feminist writers like Simone de Beauvoir have have gifted us, as it were, or cursed us with, I think mm. it's a curse more than anything, have reduced the Christian mystery to, to binaries that mm. that the ancient tradition just isn't concerned with in the same way. Um, and this activity, passivity, uh, one of the very great challenges for modern Christians reading the, the, the medieval liturgy particularly is that Mary as wisdom is incredibly active, right? Mm. She is, she's wisdom and the mother of wisdom because she's, of course, the place where wisdom dwelt so mm-hmm. she's full of all knowledge um and uh, there are passages for example from proverbs where wisdom is with god from the beginning of creation dancing before his throne as he creates the world mm-hmm. these are passages that are used in modern marian um doctrine to talk about her immaculate conception but in the in the in the medieval tra- ancient medieval tradition and i say both right it's like it's mm-hmm. from antiquity through the the 16th 17th century she's considered as as queen of heaven right she and and very very dynamic and also in the moment of the annunciation i have I, I, some of those beautiful meditations i have mm. i talk about more in my first book god did not want to become incarnate from her without her consent right and so again I'm, I'm arguing a lot with the modern feminist theologians, particularly Mary Daly, whose work was very prominent in the 70s and 80s. Um, Mary Daly had a, an argument that that 
the Virgin Mary was a great rape victim, hmm. right? That God simply comes to her, seizes her, does what does what His will with her, and there she is. Um, in the Sounds medieval very tradition, Grecian. Uh, it is uh, yes, it's not Christian. In the medieval tradition, she's understood to be, you know, that that the angel comes to her, says, you know, this great mystery is going to be accomplished in you. And waits for her consent. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux, the Cistercian abbot, has a very famous um, homily. Mm. He's, he's, uh, you know, uh, arguing with her and saying, you know, Virgin, the whole the whole world waits for you, prostrate at your feet, hmm. um, waiting for your consent. Um, and and so she's active. She's active in the sense that she's wisdom, who's filled with wisdom. And therefore, there's all sorts of things that she does that are significant for um, understanding intellectual life, that she's the mother, the teacher of, of huh. the, the, the uh, disciplines of, of the word. Um, she's wisdom with God, you know, from the beginning in creation. Uh, and as Mary, the, 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 the mother, in, invited actively to, to give her fiat, to say, let it mm. be unto me according to your word. So, no, she's not passive in any of the senses that modern feminists would consider her. Is there an aspect of the muse that is held in her, or like an aspect of relationship to the art, artistic, uh, or the artist, the practicing artist? Absolutely. Um, and that is that, that I'll just get chills down my spine thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what she becomes in the, the meditations and prayers and commentaries that I talk about in Mary and the Art of Prayer. That And, and you have to understand her both as, um, so she's a creature of God, right? But the idea of creation, as Christians understand, Jews and Christians, but in this context, the Christians understand it, is we are as human beings made in the image and likeness of God. Hmm. She is the most perfect creature ever made, so she is made in the most perfect image and likeness of God. And so there's regular meditations on how she reflects Christ most perfectly, right? But the the book that I mentioned that drove that Casanova said drove him mad. Um, it, it's by um, Sister Mary of Agreda, and one of her great um, recurring themes throughout her life of Mary is Mary is the mirror of Christ, right? So hmm. Mary perfectly mirrors Christ and, and, and perfectly mirrors him in, in his creativity, that the way the medieval commentators that I talk about um, um, to describe her, she is, well, once she's indescribable, right? It's like, how do you describe she whom the whole world could, whom the heavens and earth could not contain? How do you describe hmm. her whom the heavens could not contain? Well, you need absolutely all of your artistic prowess to even try, right? So if you're a poet, you need all language. If you're an artist, you need yeah. all imagery. If you're an architect, you're going to build shot. Um, if you are, uh, even cities, right? That that My next hmm. big project I want to talk about, want to think about now is the way in which Mary basically sits at the center of Western civilization hmm. um, as, as the lady in the city, right? So she is, she's the inspiration for all creative practice because she is the mother of the creator so definitely there's a, a, a muse quality yeah throughout the devotion to her and that's why we end up with so much wonderful art music hmm. painting art you know books um architecture drama mary sit, as i read her mary sits at the center of the western artistic tradition as its muse when you bring up the uh the image of the lady in the city the forgive me but my my mind, my Christian mind, went to the whore of Babylon, and is that oh, um, yes. is that the, the inverted? <laughs> that's the negative. The the inverted, the fallen version, and and what does the fallen version tell us about the uh, the the perfect version of Mary? Well, the perfect version. So the the whore of Babylon is is the 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 negative image of the heavenly city, right? And hmm. and that is, I mean, the, the Mary as the heavenly city, the bride, the heavenly Jerusalem is another of the. The characteristics that she's given, right? So Mary Vagrida um, has a long meditation on the way in which the Virgin Mary is shown in Revelation uh, 21 and 22, and the the um, the image of the Lady standing beside the throne is very very important in mm. Revelation. Um, both the 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 um, the mother of the mother who's clothed with the 
the 12 stars, clothed with the sun, with the crown of 12 stars and the moon at her feet. Hmm. Um, she's standing on the ark, or she is the ark, hmm. as the doors of the temple open. So she's shown as the ark. She's shown as clothed with the, the celestial creatures. And then in, that's in Revelation 12, and 11, 12. And then in 21, 22, she's shown as the bride and as the tree of life standing beside the throne, right? So... Um, the the negative image of, of that I this is where um, I know Jonathan and and Jordan have talked some about this um, th- this this negative image of destructiveness yes yeah. that you're having to understand the sort of I you know you asked me that and I'm not quite, I've not really meditated through that hmm. it, it's the disobedience I mean that Mary is the new Eve she's the obedient one who says yes but Eve is not really the whore of Babylon Eve is hmm. Eve is the first mother who falls and Mary lifts her back up with her with her obedience mm-hmm. um, I'd say what I'm experiencing to just personalize a little bit in the resistance to my work and I'd say the resistance in academia the yeah. resistance in the sort of willingness to say maybe we've got Christianity a little wrong in modernity is okay. I'll throw this out: that the horror of Babylon is the secular, right? It's 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 that which focuses solely on this worldly, the the you know the 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 the, the creation of power and the creation of and empire and and, and, and but you know the, the the worldly creations that are often at odds with, in fact, the the realization of the proper relationship between heaven and earth, which hmm. is is what Mary as she's both earthly because Christ becomes incarnate through her, and heavenly because she's the holy of holies where God is present. So yeah. she she creates the proper relationship. The whore of Babylon focuses solely on this world. How's that? Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with that for the moment. Well, you I don't, it, it's not an inversion in quite the way John, okay. Jonathan's really going to talk about inversions, and I, I, I find I'm more huh. caught in battles, maybe. But I'm not what, sure. Like uh, there's uh, an array of tensions that you're trying to play rather than I, I, I don't know the, the way you said that inversion seems like it's a dualistic, a binary thing. And are you do you resist binaries no. or? No, no, I don't think, I don't think, well, it's just that Jonathan, it's interesting for me listening to him because he just, he sees the symbolism differently from Mm. I do. And mine is, is largely informed by these structures that I see in the medieval exegesis. Um, And the, the tension between the, this worldly and the, and this heavenly city is more familiar to me. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. In 2015, you you came into prominence by writing an article. Uh, I'm going to tie this into what we're saying, but um, you you uh, in praise of of men or something like that. And it was three cheers for white men. Oh, three and cheers it, for white it, men. Yes, and and in fact, I wrote that in 2015. It, it's been a long journey to prominence with it. Yeah, it okay. nobody, nobody noticed it initially. <laughs> okay, so there was no thrusting, but there was a gentle swell. Um, yes. But I wonder, in that article, and I'm truncating, in that article, you said that you basically praised Western masculinity for providing uh, the road for justice for women. Is that is that I don't want to misquote you to your face or anything like that. But you, you um, laid out. That, that's, that's the gist. I mean, it was titled Three Cheers for White Men because I was playing off the dead white European males source mm-hmm. of all, you know, evil and oppression and saying, in fact... Western civilization has been very good for women. Um, I talked about white women because I was just trying to push them in women and, you know, foregrounding this white, that the whiteness was to foreground European and Western. It was not to foreground race. Mm. Obviously, since June 2015, when I published, posted that, the country has gotten quite excited about racial characteristics Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. a way that they weren't quite the same way in June 2015. Um, the, what I was trying to say was, you know, it, men and women have worked together to develop this civilization, mm-hmm. that women women have benefited from many of the strictures, for example, chivalric strictures that men have placed on themselves. Rape is a crime. There is as, Consent as, is necessary. Consent is necessary for marriage. Um, women have been recognized politically. Um, and, you know, before women were had the vote, only men did. So some men must have voted in favor of our having the vote. And that, you know, that this tradition is also that which in which the idea of freedom of speech is developed. 
So hmm. if we're going to argue about it, recognize that that's also part of that Western tradition that has been so happily vilified by so many of my colleagues in academia. Mm -hmm. Have you seen or have you talked about or have you meditated on, to use uh, your terminology, about the relationship of, of Mary as, uh, as a collection of symbols and as an object of meditation and as an influence on Western culture? Um, have, you, has, have you drawn lines between how the, the church has um, imaged Mary and the developments later in our civilizations with regards to uh, female rights and women's rights. Well, I, I, so I've been working on this devotion, this problem of the devo medieval devotion to Mary since I was an undergraduate, and um, it came out of work that I did, uh, for example, in courses in New Testament. And one of the papers I wrote very early on as an undergraduate was how important women were in the Gospels, in mm -hmm. the Gospel story. I did a paper mm. particularly, I think, on Matthew. Um, Christianity gives a very prominent role to women, and particularly because Jesus gave a very prominent role to women. If you think about all of the most significant mm. moments of Jesus's life are marked by the presence of women, and to a certain extent, by the absence of men. So huh. his birth, or his conception, and, and you know, <laughs> yeah. birth, marriage, um, that, that women are obviously, uh, are, are recognized as being prominent in his ministry. Um, he, he gives some of his most important teachings to women, for example, the Samaritan woman or to the woman of, hmm. of many sins who, who anoints his, his, him for his, anoints him, who's identified with Mary Magdalene, but there's complicated tradition there. Um, that Mary, that it, it, it's the women who are left standing beside the cross when he's dying. Hmm. Um, that, you know, John is there, but it's Mary, it's the women, all the other men have run away terrified. I've done a lot of meditation on that phenomenon in the last few years. Hmm. Um, and it's women who go to the tomb first and therefore are are the first witnesses to the resurrection. So, you know, the, the Gospels already give an enormously significant place to women and to hmm. women's witness. Um, that, that it's only through the women that the, the, the men, Peter and John, go back to the tomb and find it empty. It's because the women came and said, he's not there. And hmm. then the guys go, Right. So, I mean, it's it's if if um, Christianity is given a prominent place to women, well, it's because Jesus did. All right. So so that that that's significant um, that women women have a particular kind of role in Christianity. Obviously, socially, that's that's taken many different forms. Yeah. Um, you know, for for nuns um, who are modeling themselves, they're 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 not so much modeling themselves on Mary always, but they are themselves brides of Christ. And yeah. she has a characteristic of being the bride of God. So sometimes they're, they're focusing on her. Nuns tend to focus more directly on Jesus and, and him as their bridegroom. Um, what I've been describing in this, these, this meditation on Mary is the wisdom and the mother of wisdom. She has a very prominent role as, um, for example, the patroness of the Faculty of Arts at Paris, at the University of Paris. Hmm that they recognize her as, as teacher. She's magistra of the language arts because she gives birth to the word. Um, and, hmm. uh, you know, I, to, to my mind, you, it, Western civilization is inconceivable about that, without that artistic and creative core of framed by Mary of, of focusing on, on the incarnation of the creator. Um, I, so you'd need to like, I think, um, fine-tune your question for yeah me. yeah yeah thank you um, it's, it's, it's like it's a bit big <laughs> yeah no yeah I, I start big and um and then i just riff on it. i'm i'm just i'm kind of caught up in the you bringing up the muse and and mary as the the magister or the teacher of language arts and magistra and it, yeah the feminine magistra. It, she's magister masculine magistra feminine okay so, and yeah. is that is that inherent or, or somehow uh is the feminine, and maybe I'm wrong, shoot me down, please. Uh, is the feminine somehow uh, wed to visual arts and language arts and music? Because the Greeks had a very strong artistic, um, you know, ouvroir, uh, and they prized women. They put women at the head of art. They put women, or the, at least the symbols of the feminine as the muses over the heads of the artists. And it seems that Christianity has done the same thing, which possibly led to an artistic out 
outpouring. So I, I wonder if, if you've meditated on the relationship between uh, the mother of God and art, and why, why, how would she have enabled that to be so important to European culture? Okay, so the, I two strands that I could suggest. One, you're talking about the the Greeks' use of the muses. Yeah. That um, in the early and high Middle Ages, the most prominent sort of imagery of the arts was the seven liberal arts, and thanks hmm. to an allegorical poem written in the the late Empire by Martianus Capella, which was used by the Carolingians and then in, into the 12th century as a sort of textbook. He gives the it's it's called um, the 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 wedding of Mercury in philology, and he makes hmm. the seven liberal arts handmaidens that are given as as part of the gifts to philology as her bride her her hmm. her, her bridal retinue, right? So there's there's a allegorical tradition that associates the language and and mathematical arts with female characters, yeah. and. Uh, th- this this um, allegorical tradition carries on in in the 12th century, both in representations of the liberal arts and in other representations of the divine. And I can, for your readers, I can think of two books if they're interested in this. Um, one is um, Barbara Newman's God and the Goddesses, where she talks about yeah. how there's there's a sort of theological imagination that plays off of a lot of these feminine characters. Um, love, wisdom, um, which other ones does she use? Um, things like justice. The virtues are often depicted as women, too, So, or female characters, right? So there, there's a lot of allegorical work that feminine characters do in, in medieval Christianity. Um, but Mary in particular, and this is the second book, there's a book by my um, colleague um, Georgiana Donovan called Scribit Mater, um, where she talks specifically about the way in which Mary is taken up by poets hmm. and and other writers as their inspiration for their their linguistic arts. And that goes back to what I was telling you earlier that because Mary is considered so so difficult to describe, hmm. she she challenges the artist to come up with hmm. you know even better poetry, right? There's a a trope that's like if all the if all the seas were if all the world were parchment and all the seas were ink, you'd still not be able to describe her. So mm. that that descriptive practice is um, inspir- in, in, inspired by the desire to to praise her fully. Yeah, is are is the ornamentation on cathedrals in Europe uh, a manifestation of devotion to the uh, to to Mary uh, to to adorn the church, which would be the place where God is present. Oh yes, and I mean most of the great Gothic cathedrals are dedicated to her, right? They're yeah. Notre Dame, yeah. right? So they're dedicated to Mary, and uh, I mean, even if they're not dedicated dedicated to Mary, she's going to have a central place in them um, because the the so there's a there's a tradition from. M- mid 20th century of talking about Mary as a type of the church, which has to do more with Hmm. modern Catholic concerns about ecclesiology and finding some way to talk about the church that Hmm. (laughs) I, well, it's, it's not, it's not one that I'm particularly in favor of because it tends to take the Marian devotion and say, Oh really? She's this type of the church in the middle ages. Sometimes she's described in those terms. So what you have to understand is that they're, they're basically, she's always the, the sort of great presence, and they're trying to understand hmm. how the, the the body of Christ, which is also the church, or the collection of of, mm-hmm. of the congregation, the ecclesia, the collection, is also figured in her relationship to God. Hmm. And um, I had not, I get, well, this is kind of funny way. I had not properly appreciated that until I started writing about Milo. <laughs> um, hmm. And. Oh, so. Well, there was this moment when Milo got a little bit uh, of, of infamy rather than just fame um, for being accused of something he did not do, and that was a quite wrenching week for me. Um, hmm. But it was also interesting because I was I was sort of out there defending him. I suddenly had all these people writing to me asking me to pray for him, and I had this moment of finally understanding <laughs> what it means for Mary to be that sort of. Hmm. Uh, 
conduit for prayer through the church. And this, you know, the church is the collection of souls, and and mm. it's not just a building, right, or not just an institution which has its own purposes and structures and things like that. That the medieval sort of mystery of the church is always this living community, and that Mary is the one through whom many of their prayers are channeled as intercessor. I think it is more relevant to that mystery than certain modern ecclesiological discussions of her. Mm-hmm. That's maybe a little too technical. Um, (laughs) This might be another technical question, but you brought up allegory. And Mm. what you're talking about when you speak about Mary and Christ and the Bible and Proverbs, it's a form of, for me, it's a form of imagistic thinking, but it's not allegory. It doesn't seem like allegory and you're is right, there, it's different. What, what is, uh, is there a technical difference between uh, this religious way of thinking that's been uh, developed through the church and through devotion and meditation and allegory? Um, yes. And, and it has to do, one, with the, the kind of characters that you're talking about, that Jesus is a, is a real person, Mary is a real person, and they're mm. figured in... Scripture and medieval understanding of scripture that the Old Testament is is always giving figures for things that happened in the new. So, hmm. um, Jonah is a figure of Christ, or um, um, David, you know, it figures Christ. But you have to understand when the simultaneous it's like these simultaneous historical hmm. um, realities, and that one reality points to the other reality, and and they're both equally historically true, but they also hmm. have this this kind of transcendent. Um, sympathy mm-hmm. uh, allegories are more properly personifications right they don't they don't exist as as human beings or as historical mm-hmm. figures that they are I mean something like justice or or love or I mean, not wisdom because wisdom is considered to be a person Christ or or Mary mm. is the mother of wisdom and uh, so therefore, the way in which you understand your relationship to these allegories are meant to help you think through something. Yeah. Um, um, figures like Christ and Mary are things that you can actually imitate in your own it's something um, that you understanding of your relationship to God. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it's something that you live through rather than think through. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- yes. Yes. And and that. Um, Therefore, the imitation of Christ is important because you are you're understanding yourself as living according to the pattern that he mm. showed. Mm-hmm. And and that is a kind of I, I was talking about this a bit um, in uh, the Three Craters Symposium we did when Milo was visiting us and mm-hmm. trying to explain what I meant when I say, you know, he's 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 carrying this imitation of Christ. Well, you're carrying the way in which. Um, you understand your you model yourself on the other person's b- behavior and and affect and take that on is a kind of hmm. a kind of mask, um, but it's a different from just putting on an allegorical character. Okay, yeah, you're you're not a rep. Well, you are a representation, but it's not a one to one. It's not something you can necessarily untangle by just like like solving a riddle. Uh, it seems like something that you right. uh, you develop a relationship with um, through. Yes, that's nicely put, and th- that you have to live it. Right? Mm. it the, the allegories are much more like riddles. That, mm-hmm. That's a good way of thinking of it. Yeah. And do do you um, do you find yourself? I, I guess you find yourself uh, meditating and imitating, seeking to imitate Mary or or Christ. Is there one more than the other for you, or are they interlocked well, for you? They're interlocked because she's the most perfect reflection of him, okay. right? So, oh. it, and and part of it is also understanding that relationship that she has with Christ. So that imitating Mary brings you into relationship with Christ, but she is always herself also imita- imitating him. Hmm. Um, and I mean, this for me is, of course, one of the great, you know, I'd say delight in in the strong hmm. term of, of you know joy of meditating on this this ex this exegetical tradition that it's always trying to understand her as a reflection of Christ and therefore her as a reflection of the creator and that you understand all of creation through yeah. her reflection of her making eventually you you it becomes very hard to separate the two right yeah. the, the, and and that's why the 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 Protestant criticism hmm. 
um, that you know meditating on Mary separates you some, somehow from God is just nonsensical. If you understand the medieval tradition, that hmm. that Mary is the one who make I mean she makes it thinkable to see God because he becomes incarnate through her and by meditating on her you gain access to this understanding of him as creator and therefore you in fact see God much more fully that all medieval meditation on Mary is focused on God it it's it's not you know setting her up as this alternative deity which is the way mm. the protestant critique mm-hmm. sometimes suggested she's not a goddess she is the most perfect reflection of God and hmm. and the the image of God through which it becomes possible to see him. And that's an artistic problem too, because as hmm. Jonathan would know from the the um Orthodox tradition, you, icons are possible because of the incarnation, right? Hmm. Again, she frames him. She makes him visible because of the incarnation. So it it she doesn't separate from God. She she makes it possible to contemplate God. And much of the work that I, much of the the um, the later medieval devotion to Mary focuses on her not just as you know the one through whom the visible Christ becomes seeable, but also mm-hmm. the the heavenly his heavenly reality becomes she she's a model of contemplation, mm-hmm. so a model of, of mm-hmm. contemplative ascent. I was at the. Jonathan gave a talk after the Feast of the Assumption, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I went to the service, and it was like an hour long, and at the beginning, because it was all in English, I, I much prefer Latin, uh, Latin Mass, because I don't have to think at all, I can just... Uh, <laughs> I can just participate, um, and I, I find English a barrier to to worship for me. Um, but they, after you know, twenty minutes, um, the they started meditating on 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 Mary, and uh, and and something unlocked for me emotionally. It's like the the, the route into the uh, the route from uh, to get me to engage with worship uh, was. Because I grew up Protestant, Mary was a totally new avenue, and it went through my heart. It went through my not not emotions. Like there's a difference between emotions and feeling. Like like there's mm-hmm. there's a Protestant tradition, a, a kind of uh, modern Protestant tradition of a lot of music and rock and roll, and it, and I I find that distasteful because it feels very emotional to me, and it doesn't help me like resonate on a feeling level. But there was mm-hmm. something that that the the image uh, and and the meditation. It wasn't even just the image, but the meditation and and talking about her allowed me uh, access uh, through my emotions. Um, instead of uh, and and kind of uh, turned off my brain so that I could actually engage in in the ceremony without uh, resisting it as my Protestant blood so directs you know <laughs> I'm happy to hear that <laughs> so in in the in the high Middle Ages what you're describing would be the twinning of affect and intellect that, mm. that and and indeed many of the texts that I talk about in my in my new book point to that that um, Mary it's love. Right, that, that Mary trains meditating on her and therefore on God trains you in, in affect, affectus, but also understanding. So mm, mm. indeed it's not just a sort of rousing of feeling or emotion, but it is a, a, a proper training of attention so mm. that you're you rise to that love and understanding together. Mm-hmm. Um I I just thinking about that service like it, it's cleared my brain of all questions i'm very peaceful all of a sudden so i'm sorry <laughs> excellent <laughs> the interview is hiccuped um uh so uh, with regards to medieval studies do you want do you want to talk about like uh the the playing field right now and where it's going i was reading around the uh some of the controversy that's going on in medieval studies it seems to have been i don't want to use the word infected but i want to use the word infected by a certain sort of mindset that we can call uh progressivism uh that seems to be prejudging uh the material and forcing a certain sort of interpretation on it um i don't know if that's true or not but it seems to be the case that prejudging what uh, it seems that the academia is, uh, from what I read, there's some progressivism that's kind of seeping into uh, medieval studies or historical uh, studies of, of Europe and kind of 
pushing a certain sort of interpretation that would be um, kind of anti-patriarchy, um, kind of just the, the progressive talking points of, uh, am I totally off base here? It seems like you're embroiled. No, they in are. That. Yes. No, there, there are certainly people that are doing that. Yes. But it's not um, and at of all. Course, I'm sorry. Continue. It's not. Sorry. No, it's it's. Uh, is it kind of taking over that, or is it kind of just a loud, small, loud group? It's hard to tell, hmm. right? And um, that there's certainly as most most of the time the loud the loud is always the smaller group. So yes, there is a small loud group. There are a sufficient number of people out there that are upset with me that I'm not sure that it's not a small group. It I think it I think it's a fair subset of particularly the younger scholars in medieval studies right now. Um, certainly, well, so I've spent most of my career not doing gender studies, very, you know, sort of passively not doing gender studies because I just didn't do it. Now I'm actively not doing gender studies because I never did. Um, mm. People have often assumed that I did because I work on Mary, and I've always said, no, I don't think, you know, if you want to come study with me and do gender, I'm not sure I'm the right person to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um and that's where you know the the argument about patriarchy comes from that theoretical school as it were and as i explained earlier it's like everything that i know about devotion to mary from the middle ages does not fit with modern gender theory or does not fit with the, the you know feminists like simone de beauvoir and mary daly and and any scholarship that i've tended to come across more recently that you know tries to push mary into that feminist mold hmm. because the feminist mold is a modernist mold and and has you know the, the that that sort of gender dichotomy and gender you know the feminization of of the home and things like that that take place in the 19th century does not match the way medieval christians talked about mary it just is not there so hmm. um if you, if you want to try to make and there are there are some um scholars that have made arguments along these lines to say, you know, the the elaborate descriptions of Mary or the clerics trying to show off and, you know, dismissing her as a woman. And it's like, you, you're completely missing the point hmm. of what they cared about, right? What they cared about was creature creator. What they cared about was human divine. What they cared about was, hmm. you know, affect and intellect, understanding, contemplation. Um, and as far as they're concerned, Mary lifts her whole sex. So, as the you know the mother of wisdom and therefore completely filled with all knowledge she knows all the arts she knows all the sciences she knows all the canon law she knows all the theology hmm. and that that sense of mary is filled with wisdom I, one it, it it's utterly lost right that the the thanks to um luther inadvertently on his part to some extent but you know she's demoted into this oh she's just a housewife she's she's sort of hmm. you know transformed into this bourgeois um, you know, housekeep, housekeeper by the Protestants, and and then that sense of her as as queen and as as mother filled with wisdom. As far as I can see, nobody, no modern Catholics seem to know it. When I mention it, um, they're they're sort of mm. mildly aware of some tradition uh, associated with some of the passages from Scripture about her. But they, when I describe to them what I found in the medieval sources, they tend to say, "Oh, I've never heard that." So I'm assuming it's not something that people are taught now in in modern Catholic devotion. Mm -hmm. It seems that, and this is totally intuition, I have no scholarship at all to back this up, but it seems that when you bring up a dichotomy such as creature-creator, affect-intellect, these medieval ways of, of, there's a duality, but it's always faced towards a union of these differences. Like there's a difference and there's a union. And it seems very distinct from the Hegelian uh, modernist. There's a duality that's in contention that these two, these two things are always fighting rather than these two things are always being united. Is that kind of a big difference between modernism and the medieval way of thinking? I'd never thought of it, but I like that. Right. Because most of the things it was like body and soul. I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole, mystery of being human was that we were both um, rational and yeah. and and material right that we're incarnate um that yes creature and creator the whole you know the whole point of the creation is to understand it as good right it's the creator creates goodness and the heresies of the middle ages particularly things like the cathars however much we can know about them that 
point to the material world as evil and as you know being mm. caught in the body or caught in the flesh as somehow corrupted yeah. are utterly rejected by orthodoxy now how well they did the rejecting and you we can argue about that that is a social problem but <laughs> the uh, the theological yeah. insistence is that the material is good because it's created by god so i liked what you said that indeed medieval tensions the ones i keep mentioning christ mary cr- creature creator human divine it's the mystery is always that that interplay mm-hmm. rather than opposition yeah, and, and I guess the Hegelian opposition has that synth- synthesis where something new comes to being. Um, and it, there's, a, there's an image, and please correct this if it's wrong, there's this image of medieval, uh, medieval, uh, the medieval conception of time as some, somehow timeless. Uh, like, especially in, in literature, there's the picaresque where uh, the, the character just went through one adventure after another, and either they were noble <laughs> or they were ignoble. But it was just, this, just one, it was a cycle. And, and then the modern turn is that there's this development in the character. Like, there's this culmination, and there's this uh, arriving at, like, this grand transformation and and I wonder is there is there a, a, a sort of timelessness within the medieval conception of time where where things are static where they don't there's not this sense of progress is progress kind of a uh, a, a, a modern thing that that has no place in Catholicism or was there development in the in the theology and in the world during that time period. So I, you are asking really great questions, and I realize this is the pro- always the problem of talking about what I well, at least what I know what from think, the medieval yeah. sources and what modernity brings. It's like you asked me whether or not Mary has to do with the feminine. I'm like, no, because that's a modern concept. What you've just described is another of these um, problems. It's like modernity describes itself as thinking in certain ways, and therefore it yeah. must contrast itself with yeah. this other older way. Yeah. But that other older way may or may not have ever existed. <laughs> and uh, so when you're asking your, your question, I'm thinking, well, um, think about Dante, right? It's like, he makes a great progress in his soul. Mm, um, mm-hmm. that, that The whole point of the Divine Comedy is he starts, you know, in the middle of his life, and he's he's fallen into sin, and he he falls into hell. He goes on a journey with Virgil through hell and then through purgatory, and that the great you know the great transformation of the soul and is is the 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 great comedy of medieval Christianity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you go from sinful to confessed to you know having having done penance to you know it, heavenly contemplation. So. Hmm. I mean that's that sounds like progress to me. I mean yeah. it's it's a progress for Dante in in the, in the poetic character <laughs> through hell up the mountain of purgatory through the celestial um, spheres to the heavenly vision. Yeah. Um, and I, I that one of the things that I'm wanting to I said I wanted to think about the lady and the city. Well, a yeah. subset of that problem is the training in virtue, um, and that of course from the reason that Dante's writing. In, with the structure that he is, is from the, particularly from the 13th century, preachers are trained and, and confessors are trained to walk people through sort of self-examination, right? Mm. That, you know, you go to hmm. the confessor, he's meant to be trained to help you understand the degrees to which you've sinned. Um, and that is, I mean, th- that that sort of self, that self-reflection is one, a practice that you will have trained yourself in if you've been reading the Psalms, which you will have been because you've been saying the Marian office, um, Hmm. or the penitential Psalms, and you're looking at yourself and saying, I've sinned, what does that mean? But I will be washed clean. So that sense Hmm. of, you know, self-realization, you're realizing your true self, which is the the mirror of God, which has been smudged and needs to be cleansed so that you reflect your creator more perfectly. So there's plenty of there's plenty of the there's plenty of transformation, there's plenty yes. of 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 self-realization just not in the terms that perhaps we use now, but I would say yes in the terms we use now because all this sense of building of character or yeah. even the sense that people have certain status in life all of that goes back to the Middle Ages. I mean, there's sermons that are addressed to particular, you know, to women and their particular, their different kinds of relational status, to men and their mm. different occupational status. The, the division that modernity has made for itself between itself and its its imagined other mm. mm-hmm. is more responsible for what you're describing than 
that the medieval had or didn't yeah. have it. Yeah. 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 The, um, I had a question and I lost it. I feel <laughs> you're, you're, uh, this is Dante, the sins. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just thinking about, uh, that, uh, that being a smudged creation is such a fascinating concept to come across. And, and there's, there's negative interpretations of somebody being sent where, or somebody being sinful, where there's a lot of shame and, and guilt and then resentment that comes from that, um, misplaced realization, but still the, the concept of not being perfect of, of having a, potential but not an but a potential that you need to actualize there it's like a call to agency within the church that that there there is this uh there's this kind of this huge framework of yeah you're fallen but that's not a static state and and it is up to you to follow through on correcting that or or, or writing that okay so two things one yes and two, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it's it's um, that you are. I mean, this is so. Think Dante, right? That the whole po- the whole thing about hell, the inferno, is that the souls um, are there because they 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 are they've never confessed their sin, right? That they're they're obdurate, and so hmm. when the the shades that he meets in hell are basically just, you know, they're just as nasty as they ever were. They're complaining about everything. They, they're, 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 they, as far as they're concerned, it, they're all, you know, they're self-justifying. The souls that he meets in purgatory are suffering terrible punishment, you know, penance as mm-hmm. well, but they're hopeful because, in fact, they're saved, right? They, they, they can, you know, they, they understood their sin mm-hmm. before they died, and so they're joyfully taking on the penance that they have because, in, you know, in, 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 in eternity, they're all going to be in heaven. They're all going to be able to, to contemplate God. The, the souls in hell don't even know that, right? They, they're just, mm-hmm. it's like, it's as if they won't even, if they had been able to acknowledge God in the first place, they would be in hell, right? So it's, it's actually quite an easy movement mm-hmm. from damned to saved, um, in the soul, however, it and this is this is the great debate that takes place in the 16th century. Can you do it on your own strength? Right? Can can you turn towards God without grace? And that's that that's obviously where the Protestants and the Catholics make their their, their greatest division: whether there's justification by faith alone, um, without works, and what's works, and where does grace come in? And Europe erupts over this particular <laughs> yeah. question for a couple hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but it's one that's, that's particularly challenging to, to, to the present today. And, um, you know, sort of one of the arguments I've had with Jonathan's friend, Jordan, um, the degree to which you can on your own strength make that movement towards God. And, uh, you know, in proper Christian terms, we recognize our, our helplessness and the need for salvation and the need for grace. Um, in, in, um, what Augustine considered Pelagius's misunderstanding was saying, you know, we can perfect ourselves. Christians recognize we probably can't, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it's actually very, very hard, but we also recognize God wants us to, um, and is there to help us, you know, and, hmm. and obviously the, the Christian, the, the, the Catholic and Protestant debate is over when can you, right. And at the council of Trent, um, in answer to Luther's, concerns that, that, that they're, they they try to like finally finally moment it's like can the soul make the first turning towards god or does it have to come with grace how do you know <laughs> i don't worry about that i just know it's with grace that it happens yeah yeah well it's easier it's easier for uh it's easier to direct a moving a body that's already in motion than it is to get a body into motion so grace might be more active in your life if you're already uh going in that direction but i i wonder i wonder about it, it do do you reserve a space in your life and your consciousness uh for grace is is meditation and contemplation a way of carving out uh awareness of grace so that you can be inspired as speaking as an artist or, or as just somebody uh going through your life day to day is that is is devotion a way of Establishing a relationship with the divine power that, whether or not will save you, at least gives you a connection to heaven. 
Is that your question? I guess so. I is was rambling for a question. <laughs> That's what my book is about, right? Um, hmm. That I was trying to understand what prayer is and trying to understand how it's different from a practice that's more instrumental. I think hmm. you know, it's like it, it, you, um, spiritual oh, okay. practices that you can think of as conditioning yourself to a particular state or affecting that state versus prayer in, in the Christian tradition. If, if, if it's instrumental, it's too much like magic. Like yeah, it's you like can a conjure tale- that yeah. state, right? Um, what I came to, at least in from the medieval tradition, is recognizing that above all, prayer is understood as a kind of service. So you are, and and the the primary image for for Christian hmm. prayer is serving before for the throne of God and praising God, right? So that that's why it's the Psalms. That's why the Divine Office is singing the Psalms because they're understood as inspired texts that God inspired David to compose them, and therefore. Um, they're the text with which God most wants to be praised. Hmm. And so the best service is to sing the Psalms hmm. with the angels. And that's what the monks, under- monks and nuns understand themselves to be doing, is that they have to prepare themselves properly to be singing the divine office, because they're singing in the presence of God. They're singing with the angels in the presence of God before the throne. Now, then there's also a, a, a long discussion in the middle ages about well how does this work then you know (laughs) it makes me feel better what does that you know do i have these spiritual graces now that i feel you know bliss and 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 Mm. cleansed and inspired and things like that well is it because i'm doing the prayer because i'm you know all of that it's it's not a modern question to worry about the relationship between what you experience and whether you've done it to yourself and Hmm. i i point to some of that in my in my book that there's or i i also have um some other articles where I talk about that problem of, of I say training the soul and attention, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's it's a deep it's a deep a long an ancient tradition of of the monks worrying about whether they're saying the psalms appropriately and what that would mean <laughs> and what does it mean when you find yourself sort of sharing the same affect with the psalmist and <laughs> do you take that as proof of anything? Well, no. Well, yes. Well, no. So, yeah. so it's a it's, it's a very rich tradition asking exactly these kinds of questions. Can mm-hmm. you? It's magic if you think it's something that you can do that guarantees the outcome. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, yeah. um, it's prayer if you surrender to it and yeah. recognize it as an offering. So there is uh, one more question, and then I've I've taken an hour of your night. But is there? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Is there a You've asked aspect? very good questions. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You you're one of the sharpest minds I've encountered in a while. I feel if I've dropped the ball, it's thank because you. of my uh, awe of being in your uh, your immaculate presence. I'm joking. Uh but um I, I, I follow Mary, that's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. The um, mother of wisdom, she's a good teacher. You brought up the concept of surrender, of uh, a non-teleological view of prayer. Like, prayer isn't something you do to get a result. It's something you do and surrender to. How does Mary um, model surrender? And and I want to ask that question under the umbrella or under the shadow of consent, of her consent that you brought up at the beginning Mm -hmm. of our conversation. She says, you know, let it be unto me according to your word. I mean, she says, let it be. And you then surrender to the willingness to be used by God as he wills. And um, I have a prayer on my blog um, that's from Augustine that is, is basically that meditation, that um, he's he's meditating from the his commentary on the Psalms and saying, um, what is our soul? What is it worth? as a as a kind of sword right if hmm. if um unless god takes it up and uses it as he wills it's that surrender through prayer to say use me is i and i and and mary certainly says that right she says hmm. you i consent use me as your mother and of course in the the medieval meditations um just a second Home life, um, that um, so the surrender to whatever my family is doing. Um, 
Sorry, I've forgotten what I was talking about. You were talking about, um, you, you, you were about to bring up a meditation and how Mary says, use me uh, right. to God. That in, in, in the commentaries on the Song of Songs, particularly in Rupert of Deutz, which I talk about in my first book, um, Mary knows what death her son is going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you think about that, that that's, a, that's a major surrender to being um, God's, God's handmaiden, to say, I will give birth to, your, to, to God, to my son, and then watch him die on the cross. Yeah. Um, and and so I'd say her, you know, that th- her ultimate service is to stand there as her child dies, as witness, as witness. Hmm. Uh, is witness a, a form of action then? Absolutely, because it breaks your heart. Huh. And it also takes great courage. I mean, the, the we haven't talked much about what's been going on with me in academia, but. Uh, you know, one meditation I have is, oh my gosh, what happened to me is nothing. Are you kidding me? I've been called names. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it, you know, I think it's very easy for us to get caught up in ourselves and our own mm-hmm. status and our own sense of, yeah. you know, being liked or, or something like that. Yeah. It's like, well, or the dislike. martyrs, you know, you stand up, you stand up for truth. It It's going to come at you. Right. And, and certainly uh, th- this is, you know, one meditation that, um, for example, Pascasius Robertus has about Mary is that, you know, she suffered more than the martyrs because she, her own child, her, her flesh of her flesh and bone mm-hmm. of her bones, her, Christ was murdered in front of her. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a greater suffering than any of the martyrs themselves underwent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly throughout the later Middle Ages, that, that sense of her compassion as being... Yeah as great as his passion that, that I talk about that in depth in my first book that from judgment to passion it's her passion as well as his that she as his mother suffers every agony that he does because she will, wills it and, and she says um, in mm. William Newborough's commentary on the song um, you know if, if you won't let me die with you I will suffer with you as if I were huh huh wow and, yeah. and meditating on that, right? It's like that's how you learn to suffer with Christ is is her, through her willingness to suffer with him, and stand there under the cross as he died. And it seems to me that that a meditation such as that allows you, when you're when you're suffering the slings and arrows of your contemporaries going after you, um, and meditating on that, meditating on witnessing the suffering or the, Mary's witnessing of the suffering of her son, um, it it seems like it, it starts to stir compassion or can stir compassion for the, the people who are being your enemies, the people who are attacking you, which, which yes. might be uh, one of the best ways to get through a tight spot. I have a meditation on the blog called turning the other cheek. <laughs> that is, is indeed in those terms. Right. And, and I say, you know, that obviously I was just, steeped in all of this imagery and these stories before I started writing about Milo, and that's kind of why I started writing about Milo in these terms. Hmm. But indeed, this story has, has been with me through the whole the whole meditation, and, and it's been interesting to me, certainly one of the things I'd prayed for is to understand this, this devotional hmm. practice of what does it mean to, in fact, give yourself over to the meditation of wanting to be in this story, um, hmm. that learning what it means to be able to respond with compassion and joy to the insults has hmm. been one of the great gifts of being called so many names. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been a gift. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, our, our connection's fading and it sounds like your family needs to do some activity. Um, so feeding the feeding the body as well as the soul. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for granting me this interview. Um, thank you, Benjamin. This is uh, uh, Rachel Fulton Brown, and I will put links to your blog, which is one of the wittiest things I've come across in a while, and also your books uh, in the description. Thank you. you have a good night. Good night. <laughs>